Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and boy, today on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups, we got a hot one. I am with Alex, as, as always, otherwise known as Super Producer. Alex, how are you? I, I am the hot one in this equation, right? No, you're not. You yet, are not. Yet. No? Nope. Oh, nope. It's the guest today. The guest today, Paul Roberts, FBI agent Paul Roberts. I just, I just talked to him a few minutes ago. And how did that go? It was amazing, because you know why? He was one of the lead investigators on the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme case. So it's hot because we're talking about Bernie. But, yes. And you that's are the best dad again. joke I could get with that, this oh one. So tell me what makes this one hot and tell me about this three FBI years, agent. You three got. years of investigation on this thing and another three years of prep for the court case. And then wow. six months of a court case. What do you do for three years prepping a court case? Like what takes three years? He's going to tell us you got to get all your ducks in a row. But here's the thing is that um, there was this chihuahua in the office across from Bernie's office. Yeah. That knew he was a bad guy the whole time. And <laughs> just get barking at him the whole time. Paul is going to tell us what this <laughs> chihuahua did. I want to know why they didn't know just based on the guy's last name. Madoff? With your money. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's right there in black and white. Madoff with That's your money. True. Well, here's the deal. Paul Paul's going to give a clue on to why he did it. Okay. Well, I, I, is there really any question why he did it? I mean, it's just yeah, money. Yeah, Let's well, take the money. There, obviously, there's the money, but there's the motivation behind things. And what are your thoughts on that without knowing the professionals? Why do you think he did it? Well, uh, someone told me, one FBI agent told me years ago that when it boils down to it, all fraud, all crime has to do with sex. What? That's what he said. Well, I can see that, but he was married, so I don't know that that's and, and well, Paul was married too. Paul wasn't the one that told me, but yeah, it boils. Now down that to I'm, you know, I mean, girl. I've got a picture of him in my head. I don't think there's any sex involved with that dude. With Bernie Manton, no. Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, Paul will tell you, and if you kind of deduce it, it'll it makes sense. I guess if you get enough money, you can mate off with your sister. Exactly. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But so I, you know, I, it doesn't. I my impression of that one given the whole story that I understand just from the news clips mm -hmm. was that, you know, he saw a way to make some money and it was working out. So he just kept doing it. But I think what happens is you eventually find yourself, you, you take a shortcut or two, and then you find yourself stuck in there. Well, this and was more than a shortcut. You either was... keep doing it or you give yourself, you know, turn yourself in and go to jail. Well, that's so the obvious did. example was... or the obvious thing to do is keep doing it because well, you're going he, to jail one he, way well... or the other. He was going to turn himself in and then he got the whistle blown on him by his sons. Yeah. And then Paul's going to tell us the FBI just knocked on on their door on, on his door one morning. He was in his robe and he was like, yep, I did it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's so I saw some movie or documentary or something mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, I mean, he knew for a while that this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was just a question of when they were going to show up. Yeah. 
totally, totally. So anyway, let's talk to Paul because this this is worth a listen. It is behind the scenes, inside story stuff you've never heard. I cannot wait to hear this. Made off with your money. Made off with your money. Paul's got it. All right. Let's go. It's Tracy and back with another interview on truth, lies, and cover-ups. And I got to tell you, I have been looking forward to this one for uh, probably a couple months, as long as we've been working out the details on it, uh, because I think this may be one of the most fascinating ones that we have. I have FBI special agent in charge, Paul Roberts, with me today. And um, here's the deal. You may not know um, Paul's name. Uh, but you do know the case that he was uh, a lead investigator on, and that is the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme uh, situation that everybody knows about. And so, Paul, thank you for joining me. No, thank thank you, Tracy, for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here, and you know, happy to talk about the case. Um, you know, it's a, it's something I think there's a, a lot of story here that people don't know about, so I'm happy to get that out and share it. I think there is too. So let's let's get started and and kind of dive in, and then we'll go into your background and how everything kind of um, came about. So so from what I know, and there's a lot I don't know. So uh, you can correct me and add things and do whatever you want to do. But this whole Bernie Madoff thing was a whistleblower situation, wasn't it? Uh, in some ways, yes. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it, two two individuals came forward. Um, you know, those individuals were his two sons mm-hmm. who. Uh, you know, the as, as the story goes, you know, he uh, you know, they, they noticed him acting odd in the office around uh, the late uh, late November, early December 2008 period. Okay. Um, you know, right around Christmas time, he was doing things like paying out early Christmas bonuses, stuff like that, where, you know, they just, you know, they're like, Dad, this is not you. And he's acting weird. So they confront him and he says to them, I've been running a massive Ponzi scheme, 50 billion dollars in losses. We're out of money, and I plan on turning myself in in the next couple of weeks. Um, they walk out of the meeting and immediately contact an attorney who reached out to uh, the SEC and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, who reached out to us, and uh, that's how we got onto the case. Wow. Okay. So let's let's talk about that for a little bit, because I was watching some stuff in prep for our talk. And wasn't there another fellow who was kind of telling the SEC that something was going wrong, like for several years, wasn't he? And like, tell, do you know anything about that? Uh, you're talking about Harry Markopoulos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know Harry very well now. Uh, we uh, we're, we're still in contact. I still talk to him. He's still in the whistleblower business, uh-huh. um, and he's uh, you know he's a, a great friend of the bureau and the uh, the fraud community, fraud detection community, I should say. Uh-huh. Um, Harry Markopoulos was uh, telling the SEC about Bernie for a couple of years, I believe. You know, three or four times he did bring allegations of misconduct to the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, and the SEC, you know, based off of some of Mr. Markopoulos' recommendations and other things they saw, they did investigate Mr. Madoff's firm on at least three separate occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very, very concerted efforts within the firm to falsify records and fool the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. There was a whistleblower that came forward, um, brought in information. You know, that information, you know, the what, why the SEC handled it the way they did and, you know, what the repercussions were from that. You know, I, I'll point you to the SEC IG report that came out about that. I'm not okay. going to comment on that, obviously. Uh, <laughs> there was an entire investigation on that. It led to the development of the SEC's current whistleblower program. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there, there was someone who came forward. But, 
you know, the way that it landed on the FBI's radar mm-hmm. was from the Suns coming in and reporting it to an attorney who brought it to us. And, you know, within 24 hours of that report is when we had uh, Bernie Madoff in custody. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about this. The phone rings like, like, like the, like the back phone in the office rings, right? You pick it up and they're like, okay, you got to go over to Bernie Madoff. Or like, how does that happen? Like what, like what, what, what happens when you get the call? Sure. So I mean, that, that is somewhat what did happen. Uh, You know, it's, I wouldn't say it's the bat phone. It's just regular desk phone. Um, But uh, (laughs) that call comes in from the prosecutor's office and they say, yeah, we have an allegation that there is a, $50 $50 billion fraud being perpetrated by this guy, Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he's a known figure on Wall Street, yeah. um, but he's a, he's a guy that you know, runs a pretty clean shop. And I'll get into some of the reasons, you know, why that impression was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, you know, we take the information in, you know, we speak to the, uh, the two folks that were coming in, his sons, mm-hmm. get the information. And we say, you know what, we're going to go knock on his door the next morning and just see what's going on here. Because you know, we're a lot of times we'll get an investigation and, you know, we'll have time to subpoena bank records, go through those, talk to other to victims, other people involved before we're getting to that point. But this is so fresh. And we had, you know, folks that were, you know, that far on the inside. And, and we're hearing from him that he's looking to turn himself in within a couple of weeks. And we're also hearing that he's looking to dissipate kind of the last remaining assets are there. There's about three hundred million dollars in the bank. And we hear that there are checks about to go out to people for that money to, to walk out the door. That we really want to stop. Like that's one of the most important things we do in the in the white collar world within the FBI is, you know, as much as we want to put people in jail, we also want to recover the funds for the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know we have to act quickly. So we sent two agents to Mr. Madoff's apartment the next day. Um, he lived in mid Upper East Side, Midtown, kind of mm-hmm. on the border yeah. in Manhattan. So it's a uh, you know, about 70, 80 blocks north of the office. Um, so the next morning, we sent two agents to his house, uh, knocked on his door. He answers the door in his bathrobe and slippers. Um, and they say, uh, you know, the, the, the opening line is, we're here to see if there is an innocent explanation. And his response is, there is no innocent explanation. I've been running a $50 billion fraud. Um, so they, uh, the agents picked their jaws up off the floor. Um, walked in, spoke to him a little bit longer. And then uh, they they walked outside and uh, called their supervisor and then called the prosecutors and said, he just confessed to the whole thing. Um, so they just got to do something that is actually very, very rare for FBI agents. They were given authorization to do a warrantless arrest. It was a probable cause arrest. So they knocked on the door again and said, actually, Mr. Madoff, you are coming with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later that day, they swore out a criminal complaint and got the arrest warrant. Um, but, you know, be, because he had confessed to everything so quickly, we're like, you know, we need to get this guy in custody right now, especially since he knows that we are we're on to him. OK, now let's talk about knocking on the door, because that that is uh, that's that's tricky in law enforcement, uh, it, no matter what. I think branch of, or level you're at now, when you say knock on the door, were they dressed like you in the, in the suit or were they like in like flak jackets? Like what, how does that go? How does that go? They, they were in suits. Really? Um, they were in suits. I mean, we're, we're knocking on the door to talk to somebody. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're all tactically trained. Um, you know, we have that mindset about us all the mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, the FBI agents are, we're always armed. Um, so, you know, that, that's not a surprise there either, but yeah, they're, they're knocking on the door to go talk to somebody, which is something we do all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it wasn't like we had 
you know, a, a team of agents ready to to storm the the apartment. We weren't conducting an arrest. We weren't okay. conducting a search warrant. It was just, hey, we're here to talk to you. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, he, so 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 he so he admits it just like he's tired at this point, right? And and he knows he can't get around it probably. So so you get him, and then what what happens? Because you had, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of paperwork and computer stuff and uh and and and, i mean in in your how did you get involved why did they call you they're like you know what we got to call paul like what what did they do so so, and and i I wasn't the first one there on scene so i don't want to take the credit for that but um yeah i mean we we talked to him he gives us some details some limited details but then also you know advises that he's been consulting with an attorney so we kind of you know Stop the questioning at that point as well, because mm-hmm. he's he's represented. Um, but he does, uh, you know, through the through his attorney, you know, gives us uh, consent to look at his office. Um, mm-hmm. He tells us, yeah, there's about 50 boxes up there. Um, we showed up, and there's three floors of an office building in Midtown Manhattan that are full of documents and paper and computer servers and computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know, like, there's more than 50 boxes here. Um, so at and at that, by that point as well, you know, the SEC had been notified. The SEC had appointed a receiver. Um, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation gets notified because he has a broker-dealer business. Um, they eventually appoint a receiver as well. And so there are a lot of entities that are kind of converging, and we are, you know, seizing all of these documents. Um, now, what we actually did is, you know, we're going through the office. We see all this paper everywhere, and, you know, we're thinking to ourselves, how are we getting this out of here? How many boxes do we need to pack it up in? How are we getting those boxes back to our office? Mm-hmm. Like we're going to need a tractor trailer to get these out of here. Oh boy! And then where are we going to put them when we get to the office? Mm-hmm. Um, so the the head of the criminal division, our special agent in charge, shows up and looks at all this and says, "Nope, this is a crime scene." Oh! And we took over the entire office. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when the receiver got appointed um, by by Cipic, he was like, he moved in as well. He said, "You know what, FBI? He goes as long as you need to be there." you can stay there um, and I'll make sure that you have your place and you have access to everything you need. So we moved into uh, the the 17th floor of what was called the Lipstick Building, which is where Bernie Madoff ran his, his mm-hmm. front. Uh, he mm-hmm. had uh, offices on the 17th, 18th, and 19th floors. The 19th floor was his trading floor for the, okay. the market making and the prop trading business, the legitimate mm-hmm. businesses. Okay. The 18th floor was you know back office staff, accounting department, legal, you know, things like that. And then on, you know, the majority of the 17th floor was Mr. Madoff's office. He had the the one section that was essentially, it was his, his investment advisory business. That was the Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's another small office on the opposite corner that uh, it, it's referred to as the cage. Um, it's not a, uh, not because there's anything crazy going on there. It's a, it's an old securities term. It's, it's where physical cash and physical securities used to be received from uh from broker dealers Mm -hmm. so obviously they had it in the cage because it's you know it's money so they want to protect it Mm -hmm. Um, now with everything being electronic same function but not physically behind any any barriers um and then there were a few other tenants that were on the 17th floor as well Mm -hmm. Um, we moved into the space that was the pond we ran fbi systems and computer networks up there um, and we worked out of there for the next three years. Three uh, years. Going through the documents, going through computers. Wow. Three okay. years. Um, okay. So yeah. so let's uh, talk about this. Why did you get picked for this? Why did I get picked? Mm-hmm. Um, so I graduated the FBI Academy in August 2008. 
Uh, oh, so you were brand new. I'm brand new. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I was an actuary in a previous life. Yeah, let's uh, talk about that. I, I read that. Um, in, in an actuary, for people who don't really know, it's you calculate risk for insurance, insurance, right? Is that how, uh, like, like yes, you're a numbers so I, guy? I, I worked for a pension consulting firm, um, mm-hmm. but still calculating risk for companies with uh, pension plans. So yeah, it's I'm a numbers guy, I'm a finance guy, um, also had a computer science degree too. So I'm a computer guy, I'm a numbers guy, I'm fresh out of the academy, so I don't have any other cases to work on. Uh-huh. Um, so like you have a full plate of availability and background that can fit in here. So get up to lipstick, you're working on the team. Wow, um, okay. So I, that's how I got plugged in. Okay, let's talk about that. Did you intend to go into the FBI working on fin- on the financial unit or uh, what was your plan? Like, how does that work? Uh, my plan was to get into the FBI. Okay. Uh, I, like a lot of us that get in, in a lot of ways we don't care what we're working as okay. long as we get in to be an agent. Like that, okay. that's the goal. You know, if we can have our pick, you know, if you want to work white collar, you want to work CT, um, I mean, look, at seven years post 9-11, I think everyone's focused on the CT mission and everyone cares about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, learning at the academy about you know, the white collar crime program obviously did interest me um, mm-hmm. and fit in well with my background. And so, you know, it's something that, you know, I, I became interested in. And as I worked, it had become even more passionate about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, how did you get into the FBI? Did you just wake up one day and you're, and you're like, oh, there's an application. I'm going to fill it out. Or like, does someone call you? Like, how does that yeah. work? So, so this is uh, th- this is going to be the my cousin Vinny type story. Um, my dad was a cop. Mm-hmm. My brother was a cop. My other brother was a cop. Okay, all right, uh, all right. My I had a great uncle who was an FBI agent, um, and I'm working as an actuary and just not really loving it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, talking with my parents, my dad was like, "Hey, you know, FBI is always looking for people with a finance background and a computer science background." Mm-hmm. Um, so I met with an agent that he knew. Uh, Supposed to meet with this guy for half hour, forty five minutes. Mm-hmm. I was with him for about two and a half hours, and okay. put him the next day. Okay, all right, so there you go. It okay. was uh, I, I finally came around to the family business, um, <laughs> and, and I'm very happy that I did so. Well, um, I think the rest of the country's happy you did too to shut down guys like Bernie Madoff. Okay, so let's talk about this a little further. So, so you move in to these three floors, and then. How do you start? Like what's, or what do you notice? I mean, how does this, it just seems insurmountable to get um, into things. Yes. And so we, uh, I mean, we, we, the FBI moved into predominantly the 17th floor, which is where the, the investment advisory business mm-hmm. was. Um, you know, we started really with just inventorying what we had. Mm-hmm. Where are the documents? Mm-hmm. What is it that we're looking at here? whose office are these documents in? Right. Uh, and then, you know, identifying the computer servers. And we also started talking to mm-hmm. all the employees because all of his employees are still there. Um, oh, oh, they're still there? They're, they're still there. And, you know, they're, we're not allowing them on the 17th floor, but they're reporting to work on 18 and 19 because there is a business to unwind here. Mm-hmm. Um, the trustee comes in, he has to sell in the bankruptcy proceedings the remainder of the legitimate businesses, mm-hmm. like who's going to know those businesses better than the employees? And not all the employees were involved. Like there are some employees that some don't even know that he has this investment advisory arm. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they do, they know very, very little about it. Um, so 
we're interviewing employees, you know, both from the 17th floor and then from the, the 18th and 19th floors to try and find out like who are the people that are going to know things. Um, then we can start looking into like what are the documents in their offices that are going to be useful to us um, and what are we going to, to need to know about the scheme. Um, you know, we also, you know, while, while those two things are going on, um, we also are getting floods of complaints coming in from victims. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we, the, the firm in a lot of ways was old school in terms of technology. Um, and if you wanted a redemption request from your account from the IA business, you sent a fax in. Yeah. Um, and that fax machine did not stop pumping out paper for a cut about a week, like just constant redemption requests. Everyone sending in their request. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think they really realized at the time that those were coming into FBI agents that were sitting there catching them. And unfortunately, uh-huh. there was not much we could do about that at that time. But uh-huh. they were trying to get their money out and kind of stake their claim of, you know, I want the balance of my account sent to me right now. Wow. Um, but obviously, those are we're going to want to talk to. So we're reaching out. We're interviewing victims nonstop mm-hmm. as well. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because, you know, I'm a body language expert and I love to like human behaviors fascinates me, but also, um, uh, you know, telling who's lying is really important. So did you have anyone, um, I don't know, try to like not cooperate or lie to you or, or sweep things under the rug more than they maybe should have been? Or did you run into anything like that? Uh, we certainly did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there were some people who. You know, we at first thought we're not being completely truthful with us. Um, there were some people who, you know, we, we knew were, we were pretty certain we're not lying to or hiding things. Um, mm-hmm. There were people that we learned in the course of you know, the first couple of weeks were actively trying to obstruct our investigation. Oh. Um, and so we, we did get involved in that. And, and a lot of that came out at the trial as well. Um, but yeah, there, there were certainly people who were trying to hide their role, hide the role of others, um, pr- protect certain people. Um, and, and, you know, just make sure, try, try and prevent themselves from being, uh, being criminally implicated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there were a lot of people too, that were, were just scared. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know, your boss just got arrested, you know, your job is going up in smoke and you don't know what's going to happen to you. And now you have the FBI coming to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I don't know why, but some people are intimidated by us. Oh, um, you think you don't know why? Let me tell you. Uh, let's let's start, Paul, and all the reasons. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. But I mean, you, especially folks that are are not involved um, or are victims, like we're, we we try and be empathetic to what they're going through, sure. uh, and and make it as easy as possible for them to speak to us and and give us the information we need, um, you know, while while making them as you know just just feel comfortable in, mm-hmm. in what they're doing for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get past that, you you figure out, you know, you probably figure out who you can trust, who you can't. And like, how, wh- where do you go after that? Because I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that have gone on here. Like um, in, in some of the notes that, that you sent me, things like people who are actively working to fool the SEC, like tell us what, how does that happen? And how do you get to the bottom of that? Sure. So that's, uh, that's through a variety of sources. Um, you know, I, I think the, the very one of the very first things we did was just start doing an intensive document review. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, look, it, electronic document review is great when you have the documents electronically. They were a paper business down on the 17th floor. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even have time to get them scanned in to review them. We were reviewing them ASAP. 
and mm-hmm. just going through boxes. Uh, you know, paper cuts were a big, big hazard of the job up there. Um, but we found some <laughs> some great stuff in there, and, and we would see, you know, we would see things like multiple versions of the same document. Mm-hmm. Just be like, why are there different versions here? Uh-huh. Uh, and that was something that you know eventually became quite a challenge because you, you have two versions of the same document. Both of them are fake, but one is a one is a fake version of the fake document. So how do you explain to a jury like it's all bogus? But then they created this additionally bogus one to uh-huh. fool the um, We then also uh, you know we we learned pretty early on that um, the the business was maintained by an AS four hundred server. I, IBM makes the AS four hundred. It's actually still in use today, but it's a uh, it originally was developed in like the mid 1980s as a, uh, a, a processing server. Um, and there were two servers at Madoff's firm. There was mm-hmm. SO5, which was uh, the main, the prop trading and market making mm-hmm. business, mm-hmm. the main back office functions. And then House 17, that was strictly the IA business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned pretty early on that you know, House 17 was something we needed to really dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we actually, uh, we learned as we started our investigation there were three AS400 programmers at Madoff's firm, uh, George Perez, mm-hmm. Jerry O'Hara, and Haresh Hammerjani. Um, George and Jerry were uh, the two guys that worked on 17 and 5. Mm-hmm. Haresh only worked on House 05. So immediately right there, that's clue one, Haresh is a guy we want to talk to. Um, mm-hmm. We interviewed him, and he was telling us things about what happened when he was there and then what happened after the arrest, um, where he had you know, George and Jerry telling him to you know, not to access the server without without telling them, even if we were asking him to do it or asking him to delete certain records off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually, uh, and, and this is public now, um, we, we signed Haresh up as a source. Oh. Uh, and he, I mean, he was losing his job. We put him on, a, uh, on an agreement with us where if he was working to go through the computer server, mm-hmm. we were paying him an hourly rate. And oh. he would come to the office every day working for us and go through the programs on this server and tell us what they were doing and how these programs were written that were being used to create these fake books and records to show to the SEC. Um, wow. Okay. And, and so, you know, working through the server, working with someone like Huret, like Haresh, who then, you know, he testified at trial for us. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic witness. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, interviewing people as well. You know, that's how we, we started to build the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, eventually, as we got going, you know, we started talking to some of the people that we knew were really, really in the know. Someone like uh, like a Frank DePascali. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, was- let's let's okay. So so Frank DePascali, because uh, he's in some of the notes that you sent me too. Like, tell me what is his? You, th- so the thing the thing here says DePascali's first proffer. What is that? Wh- who is he, and what is that? Sure. So a, a proffer is um, it is an interview. Uh, with the a law enforcement agency and a prosecutor, um, and the the proffer refers to an agreement where it's a uh, in some jurisdictions it's known as queen for a day, uh, where basically you come in, you provide the information. Um, the information cannot be used to incriminate you, okay, but it can be used to impeach you if we find out later that you were lying. Um, and the information can be used for lead generation. So, okay, you know, the, the example that prosecutors love to say is, you know, if you come in and tell us that a murder happened and you threw a gun under the Queensboro Bridge, mm-hmm. we can't charge you for the murder, but we can take that and go look for that gun in the Queensboro yeah. Bridge. Mm-hmm. And then we find that gun, we trace it back to you, then we can charge you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those statements can't be used against you. Mm-hmm. Um, so Frankie Biscali was 
Now, he was one of Bernie's top lieutenants. He was one of the two people that was running the IA business, um, okay. him and Annette Bongiorno. Um, and, uh, you know, Frank was, he was re- responsible for kind of the majority of the clients, uh, the, the day-to-day clients. Mm-hmm. Um, he was someone who we, we knew was involved. Um, he actually, within a few hours of us being in the office, he just disappeared. Oh. Um, come to find out, he, within a day, marched himself into an attorney's office and said, I work for Bernie Madoff. I want to cooperate. I want you to help me do that. Okay. Um, so, you know, Frank wanted to come in and talk to us. We kind of waited a little bit, but when we finally got him in, um, you know, his, his first proffer, his first time coming in to, to speak with us and the, the prosecutors, um, he, you know, started giving up, you know, pretty much everything. Oh. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the moment we knew that Frank was fully on board is, um, so we're, we're in the proffer with him and he's, he's going through the mechanics of how they would, you know, run the, the trades on the IA business. And I say trades, they were all fake trades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like no, no, nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said, you know, Bernie would come in and say, it's time to get into the market. So we, we pick the stocks and you know, we put on the trades and the, the lead prosecutor stops him and goes, but Frank, these trades are fake, right? Frank mm-hmm. goes, yeah, yeah. Trades, trades are fake. Trades are fake. So he keeps talking. He said, you know, the end of the month would come on and then, you know, Bernie would come down and say, let's get rid of it. So, you know, we'd, we'd unwind the trades and, and take them off. Prosecutor stops him again. He goes, but Frank, the trades are fake, right? Frank goes, all right, listen, if I'm talking about a real trade, I'll let you know. <laughs> Everyone burst into laughter and we were like, yeah, we, this guy's on board now. Uh Um, And he, he went on to be, you know, probably one of the more productive witnesses that Uh I've had in my career. Uh Uh, He just, he knew so much about the mechanics of the firm, the mechanics of the fraud, who was who Mm -hmm. Uh, he's, and he just, he was a storyteller too. You know, Mm -hmm. he's, he's a kind of guy where you could sit down like that. We wouldn't even ask him a question. We would just give him a name. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this person. And he would just go. Mm-hmm. Um, everything about the person, their background, what their role was, you know, and what their interactions were. And then obviously we'd have follow-up questions for him. You know, the great thing about Frank too is if he didn't know something, he'd tell us. Uh-huh. We'd ask him something, I don't really know that much about that. Uh-huh. Okay. Move on. Um, uh-huh. you know, he uh he ended up being, you know, kind of the key witness at the trial of the five defendants that went to trial. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the key witnesses for uh all the other folks we charged in the case. Wow. So, so you had him on your team. And what about this fella, uh, Bon Bongiorno? Like you, you mentioned him a little bit. What was he all about? Annette Bongiorno. Uh-huh. Um, so she was oh, she. the other. Okay. She, yeah. So she was the other co-head of the IA business. Um, she is someone that uh, the, the press like to refer to her as Bernie's secretary. And that's okay. How she like to characterize herself. Uh-huh. Um, she was no secretary. Um, you know, she was, uh, you know, as we you know, proved at trial, she was running, uh, fake trades and a series of accounts of the IA business. Uh-huh. Um, so net Bongiorno actually started working for Bernie Madoff in about 1968. Wow. Uh, so she had been with him for 40 years. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, she started off in, in an admin type role for him, um, where she was you know, booking these fake trades into client accounts, mm-hmm. you know, back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, you know, Because it was legit at a at a point, wasn't it? Like Bernie's the was business? Yeah. yeah. Um, in the very, very early stages, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what it appears happened is, you know, he was, he, Bernie was 
doing some some investment advisory business for uh, a lot of friends of his father-in-law, okay. uh, a guy named Saul Alpern. Mm-hmm. Um, Saul Alpern was a partner in an accounting firm, uh, Alpern and Avellino. And what it looks like happened is, you know, Bernie made a bad trade and lost a lot of money for his father-in-law's friends. Oh, but he didn't want to own up to that with his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Who would want to disappoint their their in-laws like that? Um, so he papered it up. Oh it wow! Spiraled from there and turned into this behemoth of a of a fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, was there some some early trading very very early on? Yeah, probably. But you know, we uh, you know we had you know direct evidence and then that it went back to at least the early seventies wow. and some evidence that it was already going on. You know, once the early '70s came around, it was it was kind of already in the works at the point that you know one of our cooperators you know could could definitively tell us yeah there were fake trades going on. Mm-hmm. Oh um, wow! Okay, so, so so then Annette, what did she do for you, or what did she have to say, or not do for you? Uh, so Annette went to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so all along she was saying, you know, I know there's all this evidence, but. I didn't do anything wrong. I, you know, Bernie told me this is how we do it. I thought I was borrowing inventory from his book of trades upstairs and I could just, I could allocate trades, you know, and backdate them because they were trades I was just plucking off because mm-hmm. Bernie traded 10% of the entire NASDAQ every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could just put these on there. Um, so Annette went to trial mm-hmm. um, and Annette along with uh, four other people, um, Dan Bonventry, Jody Krupe, mm-hmm. and then uh, Jerry and George, the computer programmers I spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, they uh, they maintained their innocence and they went to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a six-month trial, uh, they were all convicted on all counts that went to the jury. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, Annette was, uh, you know, she, she did not cooperate with the investigation. Um, she took the stand at trial. Um, she had some some interesting moments on the stand um, where, uh, you know, she, we, we caught her in some, uh, you know, some, some misstatements. Um, <laughs> you caught her in some misstatements. Yeah. I All mean, right. She, I uh, got it. Yeah. So she, uh, you know, she was, you know, alleging that, you know, she was, uh, she had so much money because she was a very frugal person. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we showed the jury a picture of her Bentley um, to counter the fact that she was maybe not quite so frugal in, in buying her vehicles mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, things like that. But she, uh, you know, I, I think eventually, you know, the jury saw the evidence against her and convicted her and she, uh, she's actually already served her sentence and is already out. She was only given a six year sentence by the judge. Oh, wow. Now, well, and that's, that's a pretty big sentence for fraud. Uh, because a lot of them are just 18 months these days. It so. can be, but it was a $20 billion fraud. Yeah, so it was bigger. I mean, I, I get it was bigger, bigger yeah. but it doesn't the, the, sound the like- The scale is a little much. skewed, but yeah, I mean, I yeah, if we get a long, if we get a six to 10 year sentence in, in a fraud case, like that, that's significant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, let's see. Uh, oh, because you, you, and you hit on this and you, you, you said that this whole fraud scheme propped up the markets for years. Uh, it propped up the market making and prop trading business for years. Okay. Um, so, uh, so Bernie's, you know, his, his bread and butter as a as a business, you know, even from the '60s on, and this is all legitimate. You know, he was primarily a market maker. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the guy sitting in the middle of security brokers who are trying to match trades with each other, and he's you know matching up the trades, and mm-hmm. you know, there there's a spread, and he's taking that spread as his profit. Mm-hmm. All totally legal. Um, 
especially profitable, you know, back pre-1998 or so mm -hmm. when they're still trading stocks in fractions. Right. Um, so, you know, you're not trading at, you know, $5.02, you're trading at, you know, five and a sixteenth of a dollar. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when you're trading in, in sixteenths, you know, you've got a, a fairly decent spread there. Um, decimalization comes in in 1998 and those spreads shrink right down to like one to two cent spreads. Mm. So your profit margin is gone. Right. Um, you know, one, one thing that Bernie actually was a, a big catalyst of, and this has gotten a lot of attention, you know, recently with uh, you know, some, some news around firms like Robinhood that, that are, that are big on this is uh, he was one of the people that kind of developed and, and led payment for order flow, um, which was, you know, I'm making six and a quarter cents per share on the trades. I'm going to pay you two cents to route your trades through me. Mm -hmm. Still making four cents a trade on it. So it's profitable for him. Um, he was a big, big uh, proponent of that. He's someone early on was doing that. Um, but then obviously that kind of has to shrink up when your spreads come down to one to two cents per share. Mm -hmm. uh, so the market making business, you know, very quickly had the profit margin go away. Mm -hmm. And Bernie had this Ponzi scheme that was going gangbusters down on 17 and he had money come in the bank. And so to, uh, to create the illusion that his, you know, what, what essentially was his front company mm -hmm. um, was profitable. He had to move money from the IA business to the market making business to make it look profitable. Mm -hmm. uh, now the, those businesses had bank accounts at two totally separate banks. Um, the IA business was at JP Morgan Chase mm -hmm. and the market making business had their bank account at bank of New York Mellon. Okay. And so there was a big, big rule at the firm, like mm -hmm. unwritten rule, the Chase account does not touch the Bank of New York account. Okay. And they don't communicate directly. You cannot send money from one directly to the other because if anyone's looking at the Bank of New York account and they see stuff going to the JP Morgan account, they're going to say, what is this? We need to look into this. It's mm -hmm. going to open up Pandora's box. Because oh. that, that JP Morgan Chase account, like that, that's what people I think don't, don't fully grasp of some of the simplicity of this fraud mm -hmm. is that the entire Ponzi scheme was one checking account. Really? You had one checking account that all the cash was going in and out of. Now you're creating fictitious trading statements to back up what people's account balances should be, but mm -hmm. cash in, cash out, it's all a checking account at JP Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. um, so in that way, it was, it was simple. So how do you get money from Chase to Bank of New York? Mm -hmm. Well, Bernie also had a London office, um, made of Securities International Limited, based in London with an account at Barclays. Okay. So the London affiliate had one of these fake investment advisory accounts with the, the IA business, mm -hmm. uh, and that held treasury bills. So what would happen is Frank DiPascali would call up the people in London and say, mm -hmm. hey, just letting you know, we just liquidated a bunch of treasury bill positions in your account. We're going to be sending you $20 million for that. Expect mm -hmm. to see it hit your Barclays account. Great. Thank you. Money gets sent from 703 over to Barclays. They'd wait a few weeks. Mm -hmm. Someone from the market making business in the back office, uh, the controller, um, Enrique Cadillaz of Pitts or Dan Bonventry, the director of operations, mm -hmm. they would call up London and say, We've been clearing trades for your business as we normally do, normal course. Um, we're going to send you the invoice for what you owe back, you know, kind of like a cross charge for mm -hmm. those commissions. Mm -hmm. It's about $20 million. They'd wire that money from Barclays to the 
the, to the Bank of New York account, mm-hmm. and now you have clean money coming in from London showing up as trading commissions, but really it is money from the Ponzi scheme. Wow. So this international money laundering trade yeah, they're laundering in London it. to prop up the business uh, to make it look profitable. We showed this ex- this exhibit at trial. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the market-making prop trading business was losing probably five to $7 million a quarter for a decade, mm-hmm. but it was showing profits of like 10 to $20 million a quarter because of this money laundering transaction. Wow. Oh my gosh. So it it just keeps going and going. So, so you, you mentioned this, um, with Chase. Now, what is their, their DPA? You said something about they had a DPA, which is, is deferred prosecution agreement. Now, what, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I can. Yes. Um, so JP Morgan Chase had, uh, you know, a few things that we were looking at with them. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand they had, you know, this, the, the Chase account, the, the checking account that was the Ponzi scheme there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Madoff's firm also had a relationship with this bank on the lending side too. Um, and the folks on the lending side weren't talking to the commercial bank side to even know that they had this account that was the same. They, mm-hmm. they didn't even know that this 703 account existed. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, you know, we, we did find some documentation later that, um, you know, Bernie and one of his one of the big four clients that he had, you know, were involved in this multi-year massive check kiting operation um, because so Bernie's checking account had immediate deposit credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were checks for you know hundred million dollars a day going back and forth between Bernie and this client, mm-hmm. um, actually physical checks to kind of prop up the account by a couple hundred million dollars mm-hmm. for interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're even you're getting one percent interest on a hundred million dollars. That's a good chunk of change. Not bad, yeah. And you know, there were some emails where you know, someone noticed this and they said, you know, it looks like this client has given Bernie the float. And the response back was, they both give us a lot of fees. Don't worry so about it. Stop, stop digging into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh wow. And J.P. Morgan Chase, they actually did file a SAR on Madoff. And a SAR yeah. is just for yeah, everybody knows. Activity report, but mm-hmm. it wasn't until like late November 08. Mm-hmm. Way, way, way past you know the point of, of no return. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you know, JP Morgan Chase, you know, they uh, admitted to the conduct and mm-hmm. entered into a DPA for uh, failure to maintain an, an effective anti-money laundering program mm-hmm. and failure to file a SAR related to you know the activity that was going on in their bank related to Bernie's fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, you know, along with that was a, a criminal monetary penalty uh, north of about $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they uh, they settled for their conduct, but, you know, it, it just shows that, you know, the, there was some, uh, you know, if, if not complicity at the bank, there was some, you know, some activity at the bank that should have been caught and was not. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they, they paid for that conduct. Oh yeah, well you know I um I, I speak at AML conferences all the time anti money laundering with different bank associations and things like that so uh you know they have uh, computer systems and and you've just proven that the computer systems can get rigged to look away <laughs> from things. There's, there's computer systems and there's people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the systems may not be rigged, but people can be. Uh, persuaded to, you know, ignore output at times. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so during your three years there, uh, you had some interesting things. Um, now what about, was there like a Chihuahua there or what, um, hap- there what was. happened? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, the 17th floor, um, you know, Bernie had kind of in one, like the majority of the floor, mm-hmm. but one kind of big corner was where the IA business was. The opposite corner was a smaller office, which was the cage that I spoke mm-hmm. about. 
Um, there was a, a real estate company that had like a, a two room office on one wall. Mm -hmm. And then in the other corner, um, there was a small broker dealer uh, run by a woman named Muriel Siebert. Mm -hmm. uh, Muriel Siebert, um, she actually was the very first woman to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, wow. So very well-known woman in finance. She unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, super nice, super sweet lady. Um, we'd see her on the floor and she, she loved us. She loved having us there. Um, and she, uh, she actually was the one person in the building who had written into her lease that she could bring her chihuahua monster girl into the office. Um, chihuahuas think, are just ridiculous dogs. I, okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, I think the original monster girl actually passed away and then she just went out and bought one that looked exactly the same and named it monster girl as well. Oh. And just kept bringing it. And no one said a word because they're like, it, it's, it's Muriel. She's fine. Uh -huh. Um, and so, you know, we'd see Monster Girl, and Monster Girl would run right up to us and, you know, sniff us and lick our hands and be mm -hmm. super friendly with us. And Miss Siebert would say, you know, guys, Monster Girl is a great judge of character. Like, she, if people are good people, she knows it. She goes right up to them, and she's going right up to all of you because you're the FBI and you're good. She goes, you know, Monster Girl, she used to always go to to Bernie's, because the, the, the room's the cage had a sign on that said Madoff Delivery. She said she would go to Madoff, Mr. Madoff's door, and she would always pee on his door. And I never <laughs> knew why. But now I know it's because she knew he was a bad guy. So she was going and peeing on his door to show that he was a bad guy. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we got to play with Monster Girl, who uh, thought the FBI was all good people. Which is oh, good. my gosh. Now, anything else happened? Like, I mean, there's a million things we could talk about. But anything that, that, that stands out where um because i don't want to keep you all day here uh about this investigation like when you were in the middle of it because obviously when you're in the middle of it you don't really know the end point all the time right so like anything in the middle where you were having thoughts like what on earth are we doing or we're going the wrong direction or anything like that or like uh no so the, there were so many directions to go in with this investigation mm -hmm. that you know it was uh and and look i this investigation was not just me. Mm -hmm. um, we at one point had 15 FBI agents on it, mm -hmm. in addition to a couple of intel analysts, three or four forensic accountants, mm -hmm. some IRS agents working with us, some Department of Labor agents working with us, SEC enforcement staff, and the prosecutors too. So mm -hmm. we have a large team here. Um, but you know, we're looking at you know, on the one hand, there's the, the flow of funds in and out of the Ponzi scheme, right? Uh, you know, there's, you know, how the money was spent by, you know, Bernie and some of the other folks on the inside. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, the accounting fraud to cover up, you know, the money coming back in from London. There's the money laundering investigation on yeah. that round tripping. There's going through the computer server to see how this was automated mm -hmm. um, at both the, the trading, the fake trading and the falsification of books and records for the SEC investigations. Um, and so it was like, breaking up the team so that we all were chasing down different aspects of the fraud um, while also kind of bringing that together to see how, how it all fit into one piece. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there were a lot of silos within yeah. the company, but there also were, you know, there were places where they had to, to have touch points. Um, uh -huh. You know, a lot of those were around these audits where, you know, the SEC would be coming in, they'd be looking at the market making business, but then also be asking about, um, some some aspects of the the market of the the IA business, mm -hmm. um, you know, and and in one of those, you know, one, one particular example of to to show how how much Bernie got involved in some of these is um, there was one audit where they were looking through the the trading in the IA business, the SEC was, and Bernie was very very focused on 
getting the these reports that came in from the depository trust company. Um, for those of you that, that don't know, um, back in the old days, used to, when you bought stock in a company, you would get a physical stock certificate. Yeah. No one has those anymore. Um, no. They're all housed by this company called the Depository Trust Company, huh, DTC. Okay. Right. And they are the people that basically when when you buy stock from uh, from a brokerage, like DTC will just do a book entry to show electronically that share got transferred over to you. Um, and they give these firms these reports every you know, quarter, month, whatever, to show what positions they hold at the DTC, where those are held, and in what accounts they're holding them in within their, their firm. Okay. All right. Um, and so, you know, Bernie's telling the the SEC or telling his customers, you know, I have you know all the stock for you. We're holding it. There's no actual stock. So when the SEC comes in, you know, they're seeing what's being told to the clients. Uh-huh. They need to see that on a DTC report. It's sure. not seeing a DTC. It's not there. So they had to write programs to make their own DTC reports. And wow. DTC used a when they printed the reports in their own shop. They had a very specific font. Uh huh. And so they went to extreme lengths to try and match up the font between the fake DTC report and the real DTC report. And the one character they could not quite get in some of the displays, there were asterisks. And they could not get the asterisks perfect. And they, the, the one room that they had, you know, it was a, an eastern facing wall, all windows. Uh-huh. In the morning one day, they had a fake report and a real report, and they put them up against each other and put it up against the window, and we're watching the sunlight come through the pages to see how these asterisks lined up. No. And they they, they were very close. They weren't quite there. Uh-huh. And but this is something that just bothered Bernie. But the, the fact that they were going to that length, they were worried about an asterisk uh-huh. not get caught by the SEC. Wow. They, they were coding random number generators to randomly assign counterparties that they were looking up on Google to see who to put in as counterparties because there's no counterparties when you're not actually trading. Um, you know, projects like that um, where, you know, you'd see the lengths they went to to try and cover this up and hide it from the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the, the most pivotal thing we found, um, mm-hmm. which was a real turning point in the fraud too, mm-hmm. um, surrounded uh, accounts that were held at a company called Avalino and BS. Yeah, uh, let's talk about that because I wanted to talk about that because I um, I looked those guys up. And so why don't you explain it a little bit? Because basically, I'll explain it a little and then you explain it a lot more. So, <laughs> so okay. there were a couple guys, uh, or at least one of them down in Florida, not securities traders, but accountants who would somehow pretended like they were traders and funneled money to Bernie. Wasn't that how that worked or what do you know about it? Somewhat. So the, the, the deeper story is, um, so the predecessor firm to Avellino and Bienes was a firm called Alpern and Avellino. Okay. That name Alpern earlier with you. Saul Alpern is Bernie Madoff's father-in-law. Okay. So this is the accounting firm where a lot of those clients came in as Bernie's early, early clients. And mm-hmm. then, Saul Alpern retires. Uh, Frank Avellino brings in Mike Bienes. And so Avellino and Bienes have this accounting firm. Um, and they eventually just turn it into an investment advisory firm where they're just taking their clients' money, they're pooling it, and they have you know a couple of pooled investments with Bernie. So Avellino and Bienes have, call it a thousand clients. Okay. Those are in six accounts at Madoff's firm that are trading on his behalf, trading mm-hmm. in quotes, obviously. So they're telling their clients, 
you know, we're making you, you know, 15% a year. Mm -hmm. Um, here's the trading strategy you're involved in. And they're sending out monthly statements showing what the increase is on their account, not necessarily showing the securities transactions. Bernie is actually, and and this is being kind of driven by a net bonjourno, they're paper trading to make 19% for these guys. So Avelino and Obinus are pocketing 4% basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the strategy on on paper at Madoff's firm is not what Avelino and BNS are telling their clients. The SEC gets wind of Avelino and BNS. Mm-hmm. Thinks they're running an unregistered investment advisory business. Yeah. Because uh, they're, they're not registered IAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they start digging into them. And so there is a massive, massive fire drill at Madoff's firm because Bernie's saying, these two guys, they're telling their clients they're doing one thing. That's not what we're pretending to do for them here, basically. Um, the SEC is looking into them. Um, we need to redo three years worth of account statements mm. to both increase the value of the accounts uh-huh. to match what they've been telling their clients and also change the trading strategy to match up to what they've been telling so that they don't get in trouble with the SEC. Uh-huh. So, you know, anytime you're redoing statements with securities, tra- like you're literally redoing three years worth of historical trading activity in a two month, three month period, like wildly illegal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, this happened three years ago. We're going to say something else happened. We're going to say they had a uh-huh. different account open. Um, so we found documents from that period where you know, we call them cut and paste documents because they literally would cut up statements and tape them onto other statements to say, this is how it should look. And then George Perez and Jerry O'Hara wrote the computer programs to kind of redo statements. There was a, a program on the, on the S400 called Statement Pro. Mm-hmm. where you could change a statement to make it look like anything you wanted it to look like. Um, wow. So they redid three years worth of statements. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, the SEC is like, okay, the, the money is there. Thank God it's with Bernie Madoff. But Adelino Bienes, you still need to shut down your firm. Uh-huh. You owe your clients $440 million. Mm. Well, guess what? They, there's not really $440 million at Madoff's firm to pay them off. No. The cash bank is not there. Uh-huh. So problem two. So what do they do? They go to one of Bernie's other big four customers, say, can we borrow securities from you? Mm-hmm. So he borrows about $100 million in securities, pledges that to a bank to get a loan to come up with the money they need. The money all goes out to Avalino Bianis' clients um, based on lies that were made to the bank for this loan. Bernie comes out the savior. Article in the Wall Street Journal, everyone thought this was a fraud. The money is actually with Bernie Madoff. They all got their money back. Oh. What happens next, though? They all open up individual accounts at Madoff's firm. Mm-hmm. Almost all the $440 million flows right back right in. Right back. They create this split strike conversion strategy to automate the fraud so they can now trade 1,000 accounts all the same on, on Bernie's computer system and oh. Abelianus is out of the equation. Wow. Um, it went from these pooled accounts to these individual accounts and gave him some legitimacy on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of saved the day. The, it saved uh, himself from being exposed by Avelino Bienes and the SEC back in 92. Wow. So so he really had his hands dirty in this. Um, I mean, actively, not just passively. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So I have two more questions for you and then we're going to let you go. So. Sure. Question one on these on these big IBM uh, computers, when things started to go down, why didn't and, and, and here comes FBI here y'all come, 
why didn't someone just press delete? With some programs, they did. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, but every month they backed up the entire server to tapes. Okay. We got the historical tapes. Okay. All right. So we could restore that server back to. I think we had them back through the maybe the late '90s or early 2000s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all those programs that got deleted because th- those programs did get deleted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I didn't get into this story, but this I think is also pretty appropriate to talk about. Okay. Uh, George and Jerry, the mm-hmm. computer programmers. You know, after the the fourth audit in three or four years, it was a, a another SEC audit. Confront Bernie and say, uh-huh. like, we know we're falsifying books and records. We know this is a fraud. Like, or you can't do this. And Bernie blows up. How dare you tell me what to do? Um, they walk out of the room and Bernie looks at Frank and says, pay those guys whatever they want. Just make sure that they keep their mouth shut. Um, they they decide they want to be paid more money, but not make it too much. So it didn't look suspicious. They, oh. talking to them and they wanted to be paid in diamonds. And Frank was like, I can't get diamonds. This is I'm not getting a bag of diamonds to pay you. Uh-huh. Um, they deleted programs off the server then. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, we got the tapes from 06 and restored those programs they deleted. So yeah, they tried to, they did try to make, to delete some programs. We had the backup tapes. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Last, last question. Sure. His, his sons turned him in. What are they doing now? What, what, how, how, how has all that come together? Uh, so they both passed away. Oh, they um, did. Yeah, they did. Uh, his oldest son, Mark Madoff on the two year anniversary of Bernie's uh, death, or sorry, Bernie's arrest. Uh, committed suicide, um, and then uh, in the the months after the the trial of the five defendants, uh, Andrew Madoff passed away from complications from uh, lymphoma. Oh wow! Um, and and Bernie's well, gone he, as well. Didn't he die in jail? Bernie died in jail about a year ago. Right. Um, yeah, after serving you know about you know twelve years, I think it was he was mm-hmm. in. Um, yeah. So so Bernie also passed away. So. Oh, but yeah, but both sons have they've since passed. Wow. They're, and so I guess you can't really uh, take a dead person to trial. So that's that. They're, we, we'll never know what they did or didn't do or uh, what's the. Yeah, I mean, the, the what what is out about them is it's what's going to come out. And mm-hmm. it's not coming out from uh, from DOJ or from the FBI. Um, you know, there's there has been some civil litigation about them. OK, um, but that's the uh, the extent of what will be able to be made public because you know obviously we're not we're, we're not going to tarnish the name of someone who doesn't get the chance to defend themselves in court yeah yeah for sure oh my gosh um paul you are amazing you are amazing and uh i mean this whole thing has made my head spin and i'm sure <laughs> and this is and, and you and this is i'm sure you just skimmed the surface for us here today so yeah um, and it, it's a 40-year fraud yeah. um so an hour is uh a little tough to summarize it. Oh, but I, I mean, it's not, I, you did great. <laughs> and I think, I, I know law enforcement is, is tough these days. Um, thanks for everything you're doing to keep everyone safe and um, keep, keep going and doing what you're doing. And, uh, and I know everyone listening appreciates you. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you, you taking the time to to speak to me and, and hear this story and uh, and get our, our story out there. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.